This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. Hey, Make Me Smart listeners, it's Rima Reis. I've had the pleasure of guest hosting a few times this year. Make Me Smart is taking a break for the next couple of weeks, so today we're bringing you something from my podcast, This Is Uncomfortable, and I really think y'all are going to like it. You've heard Kai and Kimberly joke about the Golden Bachelor, so we thought you might like to check out this story from This Is Uncomfortable, all about the reality TV industry and the toll it can take on both contestants and creators. Now, before I share, the reality TV industry makes money, of course, from advertisers, But as you know, Marketplace and all of our podcasts, like Make Me Smart and This Is Uncomfortable, are supported in part by donations from listeners like you. If you're able, please consider making a tax-deductible year-end donation to Marketplace. Your support keeps our nonprofit newsroom and podcast going and helps us keep bringing you the journalism and stories that are part of your daily routine. Contribute what you can today over at marketplace.org slash givesmart. We really appreciate it. All right, here's the episode. When Michael Carroll started working as an assistant for The Bachelor in the early 2000s, reality dating shows were still a relatively new concept. Producers were mostly winging it, experimenting with different ways to make compelling TV. Michael was intrigued by how they would create all this drama between contestants. Just pulling emotion out of people and making people do things or uh, planting seeds to make people think or do things. I was like, wow, this is fascinating. Michael wanted to know what it felt like to pull the strings. There's a power that comes to the realization that you can manipulate people into doing things you want them to do. But it wasn't just about the power. He was more so drawn to the creative process of figuring out how to make something out of nothing, how to craft a juicy, dramatic storyline. When he got a promotion and became a producer, he finally got his chance. One of the most challenging parts of his job was during the highly anticipated rose ceremonies. If you are not familiar, that is when The Bachelor chooses which of the women vying for his affection will make it through to the next episode. We are all going into the rose ceremony. It's really nerve-wracking just because there's a chance I'm going to go home. Ladies, I'm sorry. If you did not receive a rose, take a moment, say your goodbyes. The producers had to do exit interviews with each of the failed contestants. And those interviews had a very explicit goal. Like if there were 10 women who got sent home that episode. You've got to make 10 girls cry or 10 girls be upset or get some kind of great soundbite out of them as they leave. Making someone cry was apparently the holy grail, like the equivalent of scoring a business deal in your corporate job. The producers, the good ones, would congratulate you. Like, welcome, you're one of us now. Maybe you'd even get a bottle of tequila. The tequila was the carrot, but there was also a stick. I heard a couple times, if you don't make this chick cry, you're fired. And that was more of like a joke, winky winky, but of course you're going to have that in your head, like, oh, is she serious? Under that kind of pressure, Michael would try to get personal. You know, dig into her psychology or her character defects or her um, issues and go, okay, there's one that will get her, you know? Maybe something like, I know you were cheated on in college. Does this rejection remind you of that? 
why do you think this keeps happening to you? So it's almost like, are you worthy? Became a really easy one to go to. And cue the waterworks. Why am I so hard to love? Why am I always so misunderstood? Michael explains that there is a formula for making great TV. And if a crying girl is one component, then the show's villain is the key ingredient. You gotta have someone who stirs the pot. And you start sniffing that out quickly in in the casting process. Like, ooh, maybe we have a villain. Who would it be? Um, It's the girl who has a chip on her shoulder. It's the girl that thinks she's hotter than everybody or has strong opinions on other women. You're like, okay, this would be a great person to make into a villain. We can start really heavily producing him into being what we want. Every once in a while, especially when he was alone, Michael would feel guilty thinking back on the seasons he'd worked on. Like, did we really have to make this woman cry or vilify that person? But then he'd think... It's not like we're trying to save the world and make everyone really fall in love. Like, that's great. But the driving force is making quality television that people want to watch. And so with that in mind, he wouldn't feel that bad. The majority of the time, to be honest, I I got to the place where I was like, these people signed up for it. The vast majority want attention, if not fame. So if, if it's great for you, terrific. If it sucks for you, eh, you kind of knew what you were getting into. And if you didn't, you should have thought about it. I'm Rima Khreis, and welcome to This is Uncomfortable, the show for Marketplace where we talk about how money makes life messy. And today we are talking about something really messy, reality dating shows. If you're like me, you know how easy it is to get sucked into these shows. They can be really addictive, which might be why over the past 20 years, reality TV's popularity has skyrocketed. Some reports say reality TV accounts for more than 70% of primetime viewing. It is a winning formula for networks. They can bring in millions in ad revenue and are relatively cheap to produce since they don't require a big team of writers and they don't always have to pay the cast. With the Hollywood writers' strike dragging into the summer, many have speculated that networks will turn to reality TV to fill in programming gaps. And while these kinds of shows can provide a lot of upside, there's also a hidden cost to both the contestants and the people making them. This week, we dive into the strange world of reality dating shows with two stories. First, the cost of being an unpaid star, and then later in the show, what happens when you try to push back from the inside. I really got into reality TV at the beginning of the pandemic. I found it comforting, like the ultimate form of people watching during an isolating time. One of the first shows I watched was Indian matchmaking. In India, marriage is a very big industry. A very big, fat industry. That's Seema Aunty, the matchmaker on the show. In India, we don't say arrange marriage. There is marriage and then love marriage. I loved that this was going to be a show that just focused on the Indian community. I hadn't seen anything like that before. If you haven't watched it, it centers on Seema Aunty, who travels around the world creating everlasting love stories. Or at least that's the idea. One of her first clients on the show was a woman named Nadia. She was one of my favorite contestants, so I was pretty stoked when she agreed to chat with me. 
Hi, I am Nadia Jagasar, um, entrepreneur and star of Netflix's Indian Matchmaking. Amazing. Dude, I'm so excited to talk with you about this. Nadia is tall, bubbly, and has long, beautiful hair. So it was a mystery to everyone, including Nadia, why she was single when she first signed up for the dating show. I have four theories. (laughs) Oh, okay. Tell me. Yeah. Theory one is that um, I'm tall. And so um, I'm 5'9". Then I put heels on and I get close to six feet, if not sometimes taller. The second thing is that, like, I own my own business. And I was like, I also... She is a busy, successful woman, which might intimidate some guys. Her third theory is that she's very upfront. If she likes a guy, she tells him, which maybe freaks him out. Uh, The fourth theory is that, um, you know, in the least conceited way possible, I'm a pretty girl. And guys, like... 80% of the time want to sleep with me, and that's the only interaction that they want to have. I've always wondered what draws people to apply for reality TV shows, why you would decide to catapult your life into the limelight. I imagine most people seek it out, but for Nadia, she kind of just stumbled into it. At the time, life was busy. She was living in New Jersey. She had a full-time job in marketing, along with a wedding planning business on the side. One day, her friend told her about this casting call she'd seen, And Nadia thought, sure, why not? She wanted a husband. I had tried literally everything. So I was like, well, I have nothing to lose by by trying this. And were there any conversations about compensation? Um, They were very clear from the beginning that we were not going to be compensated for appearing on the show. This isn't unusual for reality dating shows. There are, of course, exceptions, but many contestants do not get paid. They sign contracts that make it clear that they're appearing as participants and not performers, which would guarantee more legal protections. This is also partly why it's cheaper to produce reality TV. It can cost less than $500,000 to make an episode of a reality show, whereas a scripted episode can cost a few million per episode. Nadia wasn't too hung up on the details, though. She was just excited she actually got chosen. When production started, the days of shooting were long and arduous. They'd shoot her meeting with the matchmaker, going on dates, doing debriefs with the producers. She had to take several days off from work to film, and she had to shell out money to be camera ready. It's expensive. If you have to do your makeup and hair every single time, it gets really pricey. And on top of that, since they were filming in her family's home, her parents saw the crew as their guests and would buy them all food. But overall, Nadia had a good time. She was making friends with the crew, and the producers would tell her how great she was in front of the camera. Sometimes they'd even hang out together outside of filming. In terms of finding love, Nadia went on a few dates, but she hadn't actually found a husband, which she was bummed about. And then came the day in July of 2020 that the show would air. I was like, holy crap, it's happening. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was quite surreal. The show was scheduled to drop at 3 a.m. where Nadia lives, So she set her alarm for five, and when she woke up, her phone was just blowing up. Message after message after message from friends, from acquaintances, from strangers. I was like, what in the world is happening? She jumped out of bed and turned on the TV. I am on my couch in my apartment, didn't even have coffee because my adrenaline was like already pumping. And I was like, 
holy shit like my face is on my tv right That's now so scary um yeah it was wild <laughs> the only thing i think of was like wow my hair looks great <laughs> <laughs> Even when I was talking with Nadia, just imagining what that must have felt like, I could feel my palms getting sweaty. Like one minute you are living a quiet, private life in New Jersey, and the next minute your face is on screens all around the world. Your insecurities and dating life now the subject of dinner party conversations and entertainment articles. The show follows a handful of people, and I remember when I first saw Nadia on the screen, her personality and smile just radiated. My name is Nadia Jagasar. I'm fun, adventurous. My like life motto is try everything once. She was the sweetheart of the show, the star of the rom-com who is down on her luck, who you automatically root for. And at the end of the season, her experience on the show seems to pay off. She walks off into the sunset after a first date with a lawyer named Shager. I mean, it was as if we've known each other uh, for a long time. I think I'm a little kid. <laughs> but by the time the season aired, Nadia hadn't talked to Shager for months. After filming stopped, their relationship fizzled out. But even if Nadia didn't get the relationship out of the show, she did find that suddenly tens of thousands of strangers were rooting for her. I mean, everyone was so excited, so supportive, so much like the outpouring of love was truly like overwhelming. People would share their stories of like, hey, I met my husband when X, Y, and Z happened. So like, don't lose hope. And Nadia was so overwhelmed with all the support, she felt pressure to keep conforming to that sweetheart persona. She wanted to be able to respond to all the messages she got. And when people asked her to appear at events, she would do it even if they weren't offering any money. She did get some paid gigs, like some sponsored Instagram posts, but it wasn't a lot. It cost me way more money to be on the Mm. show or even the aftermath of the show to go to all of these things than I actually was making. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Nadia was happy, but she was also really, really stressed. Her life was suddenly so different. All these strangers were acting like they knew her because they'd seen her on TV. They'd email her at work, call her house. One guy even showed up at her doorstep. Yeah, couldn't find a therapist fast enough. I just didn't know how to process the response. I didn't know how to process everybody's opinions of me. Then the following year, a producer from the show called her up and was like, do you want to come back on for season two? She hesitated. I was like, does it seem desperate if I go on again? Are people going to be like, damn, this girl's still single? Mm. And they were like, look, you have nothing to lose by by trying again. I was like, okay, fine. She still wanted to find love, and she hoped that this time around she'd have better luck. Also, yeah, there were drawbacks to being on the show, but overwhelmingly people loved her, and who knows what other opportunities she might get from the exposure. So she signed up for season two. When they started filming, producers told her they'd put her on some new dates and that they'd shoot some scenes with her and Shaker to show viewers that they're good friends now. And I was like, cool, that sounds great and is like very accurate to what is happening. (laughs) So she went through the whole process again. She started dating someone on the show and they filmed a bunch of scenes and debriefs. But ultimately, by the time production wrapped, Nadia was still single. She did not find her soulmate. 
Once again, she was getting ready to watch herself date, unsuccessfully, on Netflix. Can you tell me about the moment that you watched season two for the first time? Oh my god, I was in my parents' house. And what she was seeing on the screen, it did not match at all with what she remembered. There are some scenes I literally sat up and yelled at the TV. I was like, what? And then like a jaw on the floor. And I'm like, what is this? Without getting into the weeds too much, the show basically was edited to look like Shaker was still Nadia's boyfriend, or that there was at least something between them. We reached out to Shaker for this episode, and he didn't reply, But in previous interviews, he also indicated that they were not dating at the time. But the show made it look like Nadia ruthlessly left him for another guy who she kissed right in front of him. I'm like, oh my God, like people must think I am a bitch. And so they were basically somewhat tearing me down to build him up. She's not wrong. I remember watching the show during a family vacation, and I actually gasped at certain scenes. I even brought my brother into the living room to watch it with me because I thought what Nadia was doing felt shockingly mean. And, you know, it made for good TV. Like most viewers, I just assumed what I was watching is what actually happened. I couldn't have known that real-life Nadia was fuming. After she watched the show, she called one of the producers who she considered a friend at the time. They'd even gone to a hockey game together. I was mad at everybody because I was like, how could they do this to me? Like, I opened my home to you. Like, my family, like, cooked food, fed you, gave Mm. you alcohol, took you out for dinners. Like, I was like, we literally welcomed you with open arms. The producer essentially told her, look, anyone with a brain cell can tell what was really happening here. You're fine. But the hate comments were already rolling in on social media. Like, you don't deserve love. You're going to be single forever. You're like, you're a hoe. You're a this, this. Like, I hope Shaker's future son comes back and fucks you and this, this, and that. Like, who says that to somebody? I'm so sorry. I don't even know how anyone is able to deal with that kind no. of response. It was, it was wild. She couldn't stop worrying about all the ways this could potentially affect her life. Who knows who might see this show? I was like, well, now, like, are people going to, like, if I ever date somebody in the future, are is their mom or auntie or whoever going to be like, oh, she'll, she's just going to go around kissing other boys in front of her boyfriends? Is my employer, a future employer, going to Google my name and just see a bunch of articles about saying, like, oh, Nadia is a cheater, or Nadia breaks hearts, Nadia is a this, Nadia is mm. a that. And so, like, I was very worried about that for, like, you know, my my own reputation. Um, because, like, I didn't sign up for this. Whenever I watch reality TV, I can't help but wonder about the real-life implications of people indulging in your insecurities and weaknesses for the sake of their entertainment. Whether or not the portrayal is even accurate, how do you handle hundreds of thousands of strangers having parasocial relationships with you? Increasingly, we're learning more about what happens once the cameras stop filming. Many former reality TV contestants say they experienced severe depression and anxiety. Most notably, a couple years back, two former contestants of Love Island died by suicide. Many former reality TV stars have publicly pushed for mental health support after filming. 
Like one Love is Blind contestant who got married on the show asked the production company for help finding a marriage counselor. He said, I literally begged for help and I didn't get it. Like, I want to fix my marriage that you've thrust us into for profit. It also doesn't help that many contestants, they're on full display at their lowest moments. For the more intense shows, they're often deprived of sleep while offered an excess of alcohol. Because of the pressure, the isolation, the nonstop filming, some have reported having panic attacks or breakdowns, only for producers to push them to keep on filming. Former Love is Blind contestants recently revealed that they signed contracts that basically forced them to show up till the very end of filming, or else they have to pay a $50,000 fine. Indian matchmaking is comparatively tame. The people on the show don't have to take weeks off of work or live in a house filled with cameras. Even still, the backlash Nadia experienced was intense. And some of her friends didn't seem to completely get it. Like, one of them just texted her this Reddit thread all about her. She thought it would be positive. I start reading this thread, and it's just people who are shitting on me. And I was just like, oh my god. So I ended up leaving work, Mm. sitting in my car, literally hyperventilating, called my brother, and he was, like, talking me off a cliff. Her brother told her, listen, even though this is about you, it really isn't actually about you. This is about giving audiences what they want. It's just a formula. It's entertainment. And you're just a pawn in that. He's like, they built you up in season one, so he's like, they're gonna tear you down now. That's what makes good TV. And he was just like, you're just a character. That's all. We know what happened. Your close friends know what happened. He's like, who gives a crap about random people on the internet? And I was like, yeah. It, of course, wasn't just one light bulb moment, but Nadia kept repeating this sentiment to herself. It took me a really long time to separate character Nadia from real-life Nadia. Producer friend from actual friend who happens to be a producer. Something I keep thinking about is how when Nadia signed up for this show, she told herself she had nothing to lose. Even producers reminded her that when she signed up for round two. But it is clear that when you sign a contract for a reality dating show, you have so much to lose— You forfeit agency over your image and open yourself up to ridicule and consequences that can follow you for the rest of your life. And even though it can lead to more money, it's becoming harder for reality stars to stand out and make a lucrative career out of being an influencer. Many of them just return to their 9-to-5 jobs. If you look at Nadia's social media presence, you can see that she's trying to make the most out of her time on the show— She has more than 100,000 followers, collaborates with brands, and has a cameo where she charges $50 for personalized video messages. She's not getting rich off of it, but these days she's at least asking for money. She used to think that giving away her time for free made her a nice person. But, like, nice doesn't make money. And so um, now I, I make sure I have my rates. I always ask people who send me DMs for collaborations, like, What's your budget? What's the rate? Here's my rate sheet. After you saw season two, did you regret being on that show? Yeah, 100%. I was Mm. like, are you joking? Like, this is what they are going to use me for? So what would it take for you to do another season of the show? Um, Of Indian matchmaking, it would take a lot. Like, they would have to pay me. They're all making money off of this, but it's my life that you're making money off of, and I'm seeing zero, I'm not even seeing a penny. 
I've seen zero pennies from Netflix slash production company. And it's like, yeah, I'm pissed. Like, pay me if you're going to make money off of my life. After the break, a reality TV producer tries to change things from the inside. One of the things that really drew me to Indian matchmaking was the fact that it highlighted a community you don't often get to hear from. But even so, after the show aired, it got some backlash for being problematic, for perpetuating some classist ideas, and colorism, like participants blatantly saying things like they want someone fair-skinned instead of dark. Reality TV shows often come under fire for reinforcing stereotypes. And one of the biggest culprits of this is The Bachelor franchise. Jazzy Collins worked in casting at The Bachelor. She remembers when she first got hired. It's a huge deal to get this show. So I was stoked to land it. She was the only Black person in the casting department. And while that wasn't ideal, and she low-key thought the show was a bit cheesy, she had a plan. My hope was to bring more people that looked like me on the show Like, I want to be able to see someone that has natural hair or, you know, a girl that's a little bit more fuller figured um, on this show. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, now that I'm in it, maybe I have the opportunity to actually get that across the line. Up to that point, almost every bachelor and bachelorette on the show had been white. And the vast majority of the contestants had been white, too. Then, not long after she started, Jazzy was called into a meeting where the head of casting would announce the next Bachelorette. This announcement was historic. The show decided to cast Rachel Lindsay, the first ever Black lead in the Bachelor franchise. And um, hearing that, you know, news was just so excited and it just fully radiated inside that room, inside that glass box. I mean, this was huge news. Our new Bachelorette is Rachel Lindsay, making her the first Black Bachelor or Bachelorette in franchise history. My journey is, you know, I'm just trying to find love, and even though I'm an African-American woman, it's no different from any other Bachelorette. I'm I'm not really a fan of the Bachelor franchise, but I remember when they announced Rachel, I thought, oh, wow, maybe I'll actually watch that season. Jazzy could hardly believe it. Not only am I getting to start this show and, like, be on this team, I also get to cast for the first Black Bachelorette. And that's huge. And so Jazzy hit the streets looking for a diverse set of hotties to set Rachel up with. I've always been so curious to hear how a show like The Bachelor goes about casting. I think I just always assumed casting producers sat in a bland conference room sifting through pages and pages of applications— but apparently fewer men apply for these shows. So finding contestants for The Bachelorette, it is a serious mission. We were boots on the ground. We would go to like Sweet Green. We would go to the mall. We would kind of go anywhere. 
I'm imagining you like, are you like popping your head into the sweet green and and just looking for people who might want to be on TV? And then yes. like, nope, nope, yeah, maybe. And then just like, <laughs> yeah, yes, it's exactly that. So like, I would see someone if they were attractive and they had kind of like a presence about them, I would stop them and I would hand them my bachelor card and say, hey, are you interested in being on reality TV? Jazzy and her colleagues cast the most diverse set of contestants that had ever been on the show. The beauty of reality casting is that you're plucking someone off of the street and making them into a star. And being able to have a hand in that is the most incredible situation. Like, I absolutely love doing that. The new season was refreshing. But for higher-up producers, Rachel's whole season was a bit of a gamble. They had no idea how this was going to land. Are they going to lose a whole bunch of money because they put a Black Bachelorette on? Are they going to lose a whole bunch of ratings? They don't know. This is a shot in the dark. And, and what was the result? It didn't do as well as they hoped. There was a dip in ratings. I think their core fan base was not interested, and that's what holds the Bachelor franchise together. The show saw a huge jump among Black audiences, but overall they'd lost about a million viewers, a 17% drop. Jazzy says the attitude after that seemed to be, well, we tried diversity, didn't work out for us, so let's get back to what's been working, what makes us money. This was pretty typical of the Bachelor franchise. Like in 2012, two Black men sued ABC for discrimination in casting after unsuccessfully auditioning for The Bachelor. The judge in the case ruled that casting is protected by the First Amendment, so executives basically have the right to discriminate when it comes to picking who's on the show. The next big season Jazzy worked on, they cast a white male lead. And so this time, Jazzy had to go out and find women. And she tried to make sure they were diverse. So a lot of the times I would bring in a Black woman that would have just braids, natural hair, Mm -hmm. whatever the case is, and a lot of them were like, no. They just would just say outright no. She's a no. And I was just like. No follow up. Yeah. And I was like, why? And they were like, she's just a no. She's not. She doesn't have the bachelor look. But then when Jazzy would bring them black women with lighter skin and straightened hair. They would, you would hear them in the office. Oh, she's so beautiful. Mm. She's great. And I was like, what? And of course, this felt unjust, but it also felt really personal. Like, as a Black woman with darker skin tone, that feels horrible. Yeah, of course. To listen to that constantly, hearing no, 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 no. That's when my mental health started to go down. Because I was like, this is not great to be around. Um, To constantly hear that someone that looks like you isn't pretty and Mm -hmm. not deserving of finding love on a reality show. It was horrible to listen to that. All day, every day. Did you ever find yourself crying at work or just having moments to yourself? Oh, yeah. I was in bathrooms crying. That was kind of my, that was my escape. As Jazzy became disheartened, she also started pushing back more. I was asking a lot more whys rather than just accepting the no's. Mm. So... You know, I was like, well, why is this person not right? Is it their hair? Is it their body? And I think a lot of that, I think, upset them. They didn't like being disrupted. And the racism she was experiencing began to be more explicit. 
Like one day at work, she told me she was wearing an African headscarf. And when her superior saw it, she said, oh, my God, I love your headdress. I want to wear that as my next Halloween costume. Oh, my God. And then she pulled up a photo of herself dressed in a full Indian headdress and sorry and said, look, I wore this for Halloween last year. Oh, my God. And that was the moment I said, I need to get out of here. After five seasons with the franchise, Jazzy started making plans to leave. She'd stayed for as long as she had because she thought it'd help her get to the next thing and because the pay and insurance were good. But when she started to ask around, she realized even those things, she could have expected more. She asked her colleagues, what's a good rate for a casting producer? And they told me that I should be making closer to $1,800 to $2,000. At that time, they had given me one raise, and I was working at $1,600 a week. Oh, so you realized that you'd been underpaid. I was being underpaid for two and a half years and had no idea. We reached out to the Bachelor's press team to confirm these numbers, but they didn't get back to us in time. When Jazzy found out, she went to go get some air, to feel the ocean breeze near the L.A. office. Deep down inside, I was a rage of fire, because not only were they not treating me right there, they were not treating the contestants right, they were also underpaying me. And it's like the cherry on top. Jazzy quit and began freelancing, and managed to make more money that way. Even though she'd moved on from The Bachelor, she couldn't stop thinking about her experiences there. Then, in 2020, Jazzy realized she could no longer stay quiet. That's when The Bachelor made another historic announcement. The show was going to cast their first-ever Black Bachelor, Matt James. My name's Matt James. I'm 28 years old, and I'm The Bachelor. I would have never thought that this was in my cards. It was June 2020, and Black Lives Matter protests were happening all over the country. Jazzy felt like The Bachelor producers weren't actually interested in Matt as a person, and truly hearing his story. I don't care how many times they say, oh no, he was chosen because we wanted him. Mm -hmm. He was chosen because it was 2020, the Black Mm -hmm. Lives Matter movement was happening, and they thought this would be a make good. Obviously, I don't know that, like, actually for sure that is not fact, but I know deep down in some closed room that was the conversation. Jazzy was furious that now it was convenient, now it was trendy to have a Black Bachelor. Knowing the inner workings of the show, she was scared they would portray Matt in a stereotypical way, which she felt like happens a lot on reality shows— And research confirms this. One study we came across looked at 42 different reality shows and found that Black people, women especially, were disproportionately portrayed as verbally aggressive. Meanwhile, Jazzy's fears about Matt came true. Producers ended up playing into a common trope and crafted a big storyline around his absent father, which Matt said was hard to watch. It makes you wonder if the producers would think to do that if it was a white bachelor. Mm, Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. Um, But before filming even happened, Jazzy, feeling fed up with the Bachelor franchise, sat down at her computer one day and started typing. So I wrote this letter 
purely half of it was frustration. And then the other half was concern. But I didn't think anyone would care about it. She started the open letter by introducing herself, how she used to be the only Black person in the Bachelor's casting office, and how disappointed she was when the show returned to status quo after Rachel's season. She wrote to the Bachelor staff, Your show has been whitewashed for decades, inside out. Your head of post-production is white. Your casting director is white. Your executive in charge is white. You only cast the token Black person, Asian person, or Latinx person to satisfy what you believe to be the needs of the viewers. She called on the show to select a more diverse cast and production team, one that actually reflects the country. No one in her industry had talked about this openly before, so understandably, Jazzy was spooked she'd ruffle some feathers and lose work. Still, she decided one night to post the letter onto her Instagram page. And I remember... 24 hours after I posted it, I got so many emails and DMs and all of this stuff. And a lot of it was very positive feedback. There were a couple of trolls in her inbox, which is a given, but many more people who were excited to see someone speak out against the show. And to her surprise, instead of being alienated from the industry, she found herself suddenly in demand. I got to go into some meetings and spoke with a lot of production companies that wanted to do better, which was actually Mm. really interesting to like, be like, we read your story. We understand Mm -hmm. where you're coming from. How do we actually implement this? What do we need to do to move forward? Executive producers from The Bachelor and even the president of entertainment at ABC responded to her letter with public statements, basically saying, yes, we know we have a responsibility that our show is representative of the world we live in. This is just the beginning, we're taking positive steps, and we'll do better. Since then, I should say the show has cast a few bachelorettes who are Black. Lately, Jazzy has been reconsidering not just diversity within reality TV, but the whole genre. Like, what does it mean to turn someone into a star? It was, like, a lot cloudier than I thought it was, because Mm. I thought... This I was making their lives better when, in fact, I was actually making it worse by putting them on the show. It, it sounds like you had regrets in some ways. I had some regrets, especially one individual that told me that she was suicidal mm-hmm. after the show. Because um, she was someone I really pushed for to get on that show. Jazzy started to understand how competing with a bunch of women in front of a massive audience can take a real toll on your mental health. You're constantly comparing yourself to other women on the show. Um, A lot of these people quit their jobs to get on TV. They don't get paid for it. If anything, they're required to spend thousands of dollars on fancy gowns and heels, even when they might have to go home after just one episode. I've also read accounts of women cashing out their retirement savings or going into serious credit card debt just to be on the show. So a lot of them have this, like, hope that this is going to work out for them. And then a lot of them, it doesn't. So they come home to nothing. Nothing except for a flood of critiques. No big career, no soulmate. While working on this episode, I kept thinking of this book I read by Danielle Lindemann, a sociologist who studies reality TV. Her book is called True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. She wrote about how we should think of this genre as a funhouse mirror. 
It reflects our day-to-day experiences in a really dramatic form, which means it also amplifies real-life dynamics we're not always eager to acknowledge, like our racism, sexism, classism, just to name a few. Basically, it can show us who and what we value, who gets to be seen, and who doesn't. And by picking apart the contestants, by debating their storylines, we're deciding together whether someone's actions are acceptable, if their decisions are right or wrong. And that can teach us something, by analyzing human behavior and hypothesizing what we might do in certain situations. But it's clear that comes at the cost of participants. When you sign up to be a character on a dating show, that's exactly what you're doing. You're going to be a character, a two-dimensional person people can either identify with or hate. And when the cameras stop rolling, you're left to pick up the pieces on your own. But because production is relatively cheap and humans will forever like to indulge in other people's problems, networks will keep using tried-and-true formulas to keep us hooked. Meanwhile, many contestants will leave these shows still single or in relationships they formed under extreme pressure, with less money, more fame, and in desperate need of some therapy. that is all for our show this week as always if you have any thoughts or just want to shoot us a note or share your own story you can reach me and the team at uncomfortable at marketplace.org also be sure to sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already i usually write about what's on my mind and you hear what the rest of the team is listening to and watching and reading you can sign up for that at marketplace.org slash comfort This episode was lead produced by me, Hannah Harris-Green, and hosted by Rima Hreis. We reported and wrote the episode together. We got additional support from Alice Wilder, Yvonne Marquez, and Marque Green. Zoe Saunders is our senior producer. Our editor is Jasmine Romero. Our intern is H. Conley. Sound design and audio engineering by Drew Jostad. Bridget Bodner is Marketplace's director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital Neil Scarborough is the general manager and vice president of Marketplace. And our theme music is by Wonderly. All right, we'll catch y'all next week. I heard a couple times, if you don't make this chick cry, you're fired.